Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, let's dive in. We are in week three of our current sermon series titled, What Kind of King? And each week we have been looking at how Jesus came to this earth in a manner completely different than what modern human beings call leadership. When, when, especially in our culture today, we live in a culture that is very much obsessed with leadership. And so when Jesus came to earth, God, as he typically does, he flipped the script on what a modern leader looks like. And so far, we've talked about Jesus trading his royal crown for a crown of thorns. We talked about him trading his royal scepter for a servant's towel. And then today, we're going to talk about how Jesus traded a royal palace for a stable. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave up his heavenly dwelling the throne where he came from on high, and was born in a stable. But what's interesting about this is it didn't end there. I think a lot of times, especially in the Christmas season, we look at the manger, we look at the stable, or we look at the, what do the kids call it, the feeding bin, feeding something? Anyway, but the feeding box, yes. So it, Tim texted me and said, hey, should we re-sing Away in a Manger, but change it to Away in a Feeding Box? Yeah, hey, you know, maybe New Living Translation, something, I don't know what they use. But anyway, we, we look at all of these things, Jesus born in a stable, Jesus laid in a manger, and we say, oh, what humble beginnings. But then it like slips our mind as we go throughout the rest of Jesus' story, right? And we kind of forget that this is where Jesus came from, but we forget that that's where Jesus stayed. When you go through the Gospels, you notice something very, very interesting. Jesus didn't seem to have a home. Jesus is constantly wandering town to town, reliant on other people's homes, right? In fact, Matthew 8 and Luke 9 both record this teaching from Jesus. There's these, all these people who show up wanting to follow Jesus because he's doing all of these miracles. And Jesus gives them warnings and says, hey, listen, if you want to be a disciple of mine, there's some things that you've got to do. And one of the warnings that he gives them is this. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. Seemingly homeless, right? There's another passage in Matthew 17 where Peter and Jesus, they go to the temple and there's this temple tax that you had to pay every time you go into the tax. And it wasn't, it wasn't much, it was just a couple of coins. And so they get there and the, the Pharisees and scribes ask Jesus, well, aren't you going to pay the temple tax? And what's Jesus do? He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a couple of coins and tosses them in. No, he doesn't. He turns to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, I want you to go to the lake, cast a line, pull out a fish. The first fish you find is going to have a coin in its mouth. That'll cover our temp temple tax. Jesus didn't even have two coins to rub together to pay the temple tax, right? But yet God always provided for him. Point of the story being, Jesus wasn't just born in a manger. Jesus wasn't just born in a stable. Jesus lived this life of homeless humility 
his entire existence, his entire life, wandering around a man without a home on this earth. And I think some of us might do a little bit better if we stopped viewing our home on this earth as our final home. Amen? We'll get there, though. So where do we find a king like this? What kind of king makes this exchange? And we see it in the way, or in where we look for kings. So today we're going to look at and find three different things. We're going to look at where to find a king. We're going to look at where we can find a savior. And then within those two things, we're going to look at where we can find ourselves. So to start, we're going to jump into our scripture passage for today. Scripture passage comes from Matthew 11, 1 through 19, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. It's going to be up on the screen as well, so you do not have to. Here it is. It says this, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets the law, and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither, neither eating or, nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The word of the Lord. Amen. So, from that passage, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? It's interesting to me, this is a very interesting passage to me, because, you know, I'm guilty of this. We've talked about this a lot before. We read the Bible like you read a textbook for English class, where you read as fast and furiously as you can to get it over with, and you don't really care if you understand what's going on. Anybody else willing to admit that? That's how I read the Bible, right? Because when I read the Bible, and there, yes, there's stuff, usually when it comes easy, yeah, it's great, oh, this is, I got this awesome passage. But we hit a passage like this, and it is remarkable to me because we sift through, and it sounds like Jesus is bipolar or something. Because he's over here, and then he's over here, and then he's over here, and under there, and up there. Like, he is all over the place, right? 
and so instead of asking the question, man, either Jesus is absolutely nuts and his teaching is just like, you know, he's got ADD and sees a squirrel in the middle of his teaching and just loses it, or there's something going on here that I don't understand. Do you think Jesus got distracted by a squirrel? I don't, do they have squirrels in Jerusalem? I don't actually know. But he didn't, right? And instead of digging in and saying, how do these things tie together? Because guys, there are mysteries in Scripture that we're missing because we don't ask the question, how do these things tie together? So today, let's look at how these things tie together. And I think you'll see that all of them come together really in these questions that we're asking. So the first part is, according to Jesus, where do we look for to find a king? Where do worldly kings live? In today's culture, we don't have a king in America. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. But where do we look for leaders? Where do our leaders come from? Where are the important people, the people we look up to? Jesus asks the same question for those who went out to see John the Baptist. Why did you go see John the Baptist? In verses 7 through 8, he says, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Jesus had man pegged, didn't he? If you read through the Gospels, Jesus' interaction with every single human being he had, you walk away after reading it saying, Man, Jesus knew man. He knew the condition of every single person's heart. He knew the condition of our heart as a whole. And he knows what these people are asking. Why did you go out to see John the Baptist? And it wasn't to find your king, was it? Because kings live in palaces. Humans like their kings in ivory towers. You know, not so much anymore. The, the very, it's very hipster now to like servant leaders. That's the new hipster thing. And so it's not so much ivory towers. But here's the thing. Ivory tower leaders get thrown under the bus a lot, right? Because it's not cool anymore. But ivory tower leaders exist because people want their leaders in ivory towers, right? Anybody willing to admit that? Because guess what? When there's a leader who is over you, who is leading the way, guess who doesn't have to make the decision? Guess who's not responsible anymore? Me, right? And so we as humans, we love having these leaders because they're responsible for everything. They lead and I just follow along. And when something gets screwed up, guess whose fault it is? <laughs> not mine. Even if I'm the one who butchers it, it's still not my fault. The leader shouldn't have put me in charge. He should have known that I was stupid and couldn't figure this thing out. Right? We love our leaders in ivory towers. And this isn't the first time that this is a problem in Israel. Thousands of years, all the way back in Samuel, we see this. It says, The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations, like all the nations. Is Israel interested in doing things God's way or man's way? What have we been all about here at the Gospel House? There's two ways to walk, right? God's way and man's way. 
Is our current leadership culture God's way or man's way? We've got to ask the question. This thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And Samuel does. He tells them, if you appoint this king, it's not going to be good. Because when you do things man's way, it's not good. Those kings become obsessed with power and position and prestige. And guess who gets trampled when leaders become obsessed with power and position and prestige? It's not the leader. It's everybody who's following the leader. But Israel wanted their leader in an ivory tower. That's what they wanted. We want to be like everybody else. In the Western church today, are we doing the same thing as we obsess over leadership and following leaders in these churches? Now, I'm not going to lie to you all. I hate making decisions. Absolutely hate it. You can ask my wife. Anytime it's time to order dinner, don't care. Somebody else pick, because then if the kids don't eat it, it's not my fault. <laughs> right? I hate making decisions, and so it's nice to have a leader over you who can make all the decisions. And I think the majority of us will admit we hunger for that. We want somebody else to call the shots so that we don't have that responsibility. But like we've said over and over again, God's king is not like that. God's king says, I am here in the trenches with you. But here's where we miss it sometimes with Jesus being a servant leader. This does not mean, you know, we're in the, the book of Hebrews right now in our Bible in a year plan. Hebrews was real big on entering into his rest, right? Careful, Christian, because entering into God's rest does not mean, hands off the steering wheel, I don't have to do anything. That's, that's leadership in an ivory tower, right? We've got our leaders in an ivory tower. I get to sit back and not do anything. And then when the wheels fall off the bus, it's the leader's fault. That's not how Jesus does it. Jesus says, I am in the trenches with you, but I am giving you the power to do it yourself. I am empowering you to do the work. So it's work following Jesus. Anybody want to admit it? We're not going to sit here and pretend that it's not work to follow Jesus. It should be hard. If it's not hard for you following Jesus, can I suggest you're following the wrong Jesus? Because over and over again in Scripture, Jesus says, the Gospels, the red letters say, carry your cross and follow me. You guys know what that process is like, right? These weren't the little crosses you wear around your neck. The big old cross. Carry your cross and follow me. It should be hard to follow Jesus. It's not for the faint of heart. This is a passage that I stumbled on. This is years ago. It was actually the first thing, this process of me turning from this leadership culture and kind of getting bleh with it has been a process. God's been working on this with me for a long time. But there's a passage that I read years ago, probably five or seven years ago, something like that. And I read this passage, and it's one of those passages you read, and I've read it a hundred times, but I've missed it every time until the Holy Spirit finally like pulled back the veil, and I read it the first time. I was like, holy cow, that's in this passage? 
and it made me realize, Jeremy, you're doing something wrong. Because I was obsessed with that leadership culture. I went to all the leadership trainings and wanted to be a great leader and all of those things. And I read this passage and was like, holy moly, I think I missed it. This comes from Matthew 23. Jesus says this. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone earth, on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Look at that last one in that series of three. Don't be called rabbi or I'm sorry, don't call anyone else rabbi, don't call anyone else father, and do not be called leader. You know, I've heard sermons preached on this passage before. I have never heard anyone address that last one. And I think there's a reason for that. Because if we address that last one, we have to acknowledge, God, are we goofed up? Did we miss something along the road? Because then all those Willow Creek Leadership Summit things that I paid for, that's all a bunch of wasted money. Dang it. But is it? Because it turns. Jesus says, don't call anyone rabbi. Don't call anyone father. Don't be called leader. That's a warning, isn't it? And how many times have we missed it? I, I, I really don't know if it needs to be any more black and white, does it? Lots of times we have this tendency, right? Jesus gives us a black and white and we try to make it gray. Jesus gives us a black and white and we try to justify, oh yeah, but you know, he's the, the Hebrew here, <laughs> you know, the Hebrew really translates down to stop. Do not be called leader. For one is your leader. Y'all, we got Pentecostal Christians running around talking about the Holy Spirit and all this stuff, and we want the Holy Spirit to come down and do all sorts of weird stuff. And we're really cool when the Holy Spirit comes down and does all sorts of weird stuff, right? But yet we live every other aspect of our lives as if Jesus Christ died and is buried and stayed there. The tomb's still full. Jesus is dead. So we need pastors to show us the way. What in the world are we doing? Is Jesus alive or not? Because y'all, if Jesus is alive, I'm not going to step up to the plate and say, Hey Jesus, <laughs> I know that this is your church, but I know what I'm doing, so I'll take the reins. Right? I mean, this is, this is stuff that like we know, but do we act like we know? Because over and over again, men and women step up and say, Jesus, I know better. And we completely forget the founding principle of Christianity. 
Jesus Christ is still alive. And he is our leader. So is the Holy Spirit leading you in every aspect of your life? Are you open to the Holy Spirit leading you every moment of every day? Or do you know better than God? I know which one of those I want to choose. I don't know about you all. But I want the Holy Spirit to lead me every moment of every day. Because I've tried leading myself and it gets really messed up. But yet when I step back and let him lead me, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like leading others, right? Saving others. But this is exactly what John the Baptist is looking for in this same passage that we read earlier. It says, Now when John was imprisoned, uh, he heard of the works of Christ and sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Are you God's king, or should we look for someone else? And what does Jesus answer? He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What's Jesus say? Jesus never gives a straight answer, does he? He always skirts around it. But what's he say? He says, John, what does God's king look like? The word tells us that God's king is going to do this and this and this and this. Look at what I do, John. There's a lot of leaders who know exactly what to say, aren't there? But Jesus says, look at what I do. When you look for Jesus, are you looking for him to fulfill your idea of what a king should be? Or are you looking for him to fulfill God's definition of what a king is? Because when we stop looking for our king, when we stop looking for man's king, we actually find a savior, not a king. Jesus Christ came to be so much more than a king. And I think that's what the Jews missed. We've talked about this each week, but it's incredible. These Jews literally spent their entire lives researching what this Messiah was supposed to look like, what he was supposed to be like, and yet every single one of them missed it. Jesus is finally there. God's king finally shows up, and they all miss it. But it's because they are all looking for a manly king, the world's king, and not a savior. This passage that we're going to read right now, this is one of those passages that we read a bunch of times and it's kind of like, what? And we don't understand what's going on. But look at how it applies here. Put, put the pieces of the puzzle together. Jesus says this, seemingly completely out of the blue, not related to anything. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Now remember, remember, remember. 
when John's disciples came and asked Jesus, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? What did Jesus do? He told them his deeds, didn't he? Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Look at what I do. But before that, let's talk about this. What is going on here? Right? Children playing in marketplaces, dirges, flutes, dancing. What in the world does this have to do with anything? And Jesus says, this is what this generation is like, right? Children playing in the marketplace, playing flutes, singing dirges. Does anybody even know what a dirge is anymore? Right? Dirges are like the real sad songs, right? They're played at funerals, right? So, so, but, but picture this. What do kids do, right? Kids in marketplaces, well, they sit there and they behave and they don't make a peep. And when adults speak to them, then they speak, right? Because that's what kids do at Kroger all the time, right? That's not what they do, especially not in this culture. If kids are in a marketplace, come on, y'all, what are kids doing? They're playing, right? The kids are messing around, they're running around, they're being crazy. They're playing flutes, they're singing dirges. And the idea here is that they're playing their flute, and the other kids are supposed to be what while they're playing their flute? Dancing, right? They're singing dirges. The other kids are supposed to do what while they're singing dirges? Pretend to be sad, right? These are things that this culture would be familiar with. What else do kids do when they play all the time, right? I know nobody in here was like this, but you ever have that kid that you were playing football with? And they started to lose, so they started to try to change the rules. And then as they started to change the rules, that they, you were playing with their football. So it's like, this is my football, I'm going home. Uh, we laugh. But look at what Jesus is saying here. Hey, Jesus, are you going to play by my rules? Because if not, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. With what shall I compare this generation? Jesus is saying, I've got a bunch of people out there saying, this is what my Messiah looks like, and if he doesn't look like this, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Ouch. You know, I heard Tim Keller say this once when he was preaching on this passage, and it was really stuck with me, but over and over again in Scripture, we're called to have childlike faith, Right? Nowhere in Scripture are we called to have childish faith. This is childish faith. Faith that says, Jesus, and guys, this is the number one people, reason why people don't believe in Jesus, right? People who are skeptical of the faith, it's because Jesus doesn't play by their rules, right? Well, if I were a God, that we don't say this because it would sound really conceited if we said it this way, but if I were a God, I would never make a rule that says you can't do this. Right? And so we walk away. But Christian, don't assume just because you say you're following Jesus that you're out from under that rock. Because Christians more than anything do this probably more than skeptics do. At least skeptics are honest and say, yeah, I don't want to do it and have anything to do with this and walk away from it. Christians pretend that they do. But we do the exact same thing. We make God in our image 
instead of allowing him to make us in his image. We tell God what our Savior should look like, right? Come on, somebody. Don't pretend. We do. God, look, I've done it before. I still do it. I still have expectations on how I think Jesus should act. And I'll be honest, when he doesn't act that way, I get ticked. What the heck, God? Why didn't you answer my prayer? You say the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective in the Bible. I think I'm pretty righteous, and I prayed this prayer, and you didn't follow through. What gives? Because I have my idea. What am I actually saying to Jesus? I'm saying, Jesus, I played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. I sang a dirge for you, and you didn't mourn. Why aren't you doing things my way? And when it slips out of our mouth like that, we cover our mouth and we say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, it doesn't slip out of our mouths that way enough. I think some of us, it would do good for us if it did slip out of our mouths like that a little bit more. Because over and over again, this is, this is the human condition. We attempt to approach Jesus and make him our Savior, right? Put him in our boxes. Say, this is how God saves. This is how God acts. This is how Christians look. But over and over again, Jesus says, do not approach me your way. Jesus is the only one. And it makes sense, y'all. If Jesus created all of this, if God made all of this, then it makes sense. It is his ball, right? And if we aren't playing by his rules, he has every right, because it is his ball, to say, I'm sorry, you're not playing by my rules. And people get upset when they're told that. But this is the real Jesus, y'all. Jesus says, these are the rules, and Jeremy, you don't make them. I have made them. But what's absolutely incredible is that when we agree to Jesus, when we say, yes, Lord, you are my Savior, and I will play by your rules, we don't only find a Savior, but we also find ourselves. That first part was heavy, right? Get the heavy, oh. Good news is you get the heavy out of the way, and then you get the hope afterwards, right? That's how the gospel works. Heavy, 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 hope. That's how it works. So we got two points heavy. Here's the hope. Where do you fit in this story? You, we got all these passages going absolutely all over the place. Nobody has any idea what's going on. Hopefully we have a little better idea what's going on right now. Maybe not still. Ask the Holy Spirit. He'll explain it to you better than I can. But where are you? Where do you fit in this story? And thankfully, I have an answer for you today. Right here, Matthew 11. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples after the disciples of John the Baptist leave, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise, isn't it? Right? So if you're doing a pecking order of people who are born of women, Jesus just told you, John the Baptist, number one, right? Jesus said it, not me. You want to fight about it? Fight him. 
yet. Anytime there's a yet in the Bible, it's almost always a wonderful thing for us. Just remember that. That's your big theological point for today. Anytime there's a yet or a but in the Bible, it's almost always a great thing for us. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Can I let you in on a little secret? You, follower of Jesus, are in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that? There's some theology on, some differing theology on this point. You know, there's some people who think, well, the kingdom of heaven isn't yet. It's not yet. It's going to happen when Jesus comes back. There's other people who say, oh, the kingdom of heaven had already happened. It's over and done with, whatever. And then there's others who, us here, say the kingdom of heaven is now. Now listen, the kingdom of heaven is not yet fully what it is going to be. Jesus is coming back. That's what the Bible tells us. There will come a day when the kingdom of heaven will be fully 100% realized. But scripture is consistent in this, is that we are in the kingdom of heaven now because the Holy Spirit is living in us and among us and on us. We are in the kingdom of heaven. Where do you fit in this story, Christian? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, and listen, I know, you know people get funny about this, you cannot, the Bible is clear on this. I don't know why it's questioned. The Bible is clear. You cannot accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior without the Holy Spirit. The Bible's clear cut on that. To accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have to have the Holy Spirit. So if you have accepted him, he is already in you. Stop messing with all these churches who say you've got to be you know, laid on with hands and dunked in stuff and say these prayers and all this. There's no formula for it. If you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is the one who has brought that about in you. He is the one who's already working in you. And if he's already working, then guess where he is? He's already in there, right? So if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are in the kingdom. Which means we sit here and we read the Bible and we act like, oh, King David. Man, if I could only get up to King David's status, I'd really have it made. Oh, man, you know, my favorite character is Job. If I could really have the faith of Job, I'd really, oh, man, look at John the Baptist. If I were John the Baptist, stop. Because what does Jesus say? Red letters, y'all. Jesus says, he who is in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. But here's what we don't like. It's not he who is in the kingdom of heaven. It's he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, y'all. And how do we become the greatest? According to Jesus, we have to become least. Don't we? Guys, this is incredible hope for us. But we don't like the price that it costs. Because we've got all the hope in the world right here. You, got, you see this, right? You see where you are in this story. Jesus is saying, I've positioned you higher 
than all of these other people because you're currently in the kingdom of heaven. But you've got to become least. You've got to give up that greatness in the world. Yet over and over again, we have Christians who are trying to straddle that fence. Right? Greatness in this world and greatness in the next. Yeah, Jesus! But Jesus says that's not how it works. If you want greatness in the kingdom of God, you must become least in this world. Your potential as a Christian works the exact opposite way that it does in this world. Because your greatness in God's kingdom is tied directly to your willingness to become the least. Are you willing to become the least? This is why so many people have trouble grasping this last part. I've talked about this before, but it's been a little while. Verse 12 is a very confusing passage. Uh, it's, it's, interesting. it's an interesting passage because if you read it, just about every English translation will translate verse 12 differently. It's all over the place. And the reason is because it uses a very confusing Greek word that we don't use anymore. It's not to get English nerd on you, but it has to do with verb tenses. Number one, the word violence there, where it says the kingdom of heaven suffer violence. That, that word right there in the Greek is actually a verb. It says the kingdom of heaven is violencing. That's what the Greek says because that, that Greek is, is a verb. But it's this weird middle voice. We actually get the same story uh, in Luke 16. And even here you can see it's that same word, that same word for violence that's being used. Um, and it says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. That forcing his way into it is the same violencing word. It's this violencing, and it's this middle, it's, it's called this middle voice. And we don't recognize it because we don't use it often today. And if somebody did use middle voice, it'd be kind of like, uh, what? So like if, if I were to say the window broke, that, that broke is, is used in the middle voice because it's, it's a verb, it's an action, but it's done to the window. And so in English, we assume there's, there's another subject, right? So like, well, yeah, windows don't just break, right? And so who broke the window? So typically when we say it, we in English either want it as, you know, used to teach English. I would tell a student, yes, you want this in either active or passive voice, preferably active voice because that's what we look for. But in this middle voice, this violencing, the reason it's so difficult for English people to translate, I think partially because we don't like what it has to say. Other reason though is because we don't know which way to go with it. Because the kingdom of hef heaven suffers violently, but it violently advances. So which is it? And the answer is, the kingdom of heaven advances violently as we suffer violence to ourselves. That's not going to be popular. Somebody should have told Jesus, huh? But y'all, that's how the gospel works. And again, I've, I've said this a lot lately. If I, if I keep saying it, somebody pay attention, right? But look at church history. All throughout the history of Christianity, when does the church experience the greatest growth? When Donald Trump's in office and all of the Christians are comfortable and popular and everything's going our way? 
Absolutely not. In fact, I've said this before, but I think that's the most dangerous time for Christians. When Christians are comfortable, when Christians have power, when Christians, you know, are, are in charge. I think that's the most dangerous moment for the gospel and for Christianity. Because over and over again, stats don't lie, y'all. Look it up. The biggest growth in the Christian church, look at the nations right now that are growing the fastest in Christianity, and they are all nations where people are persecuted because of the gospel. Y'all, how does God's kingdom work? I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how to say this any different for the American church to get it. I don't know what we have to do as a church to make the American church get it. It's one of those things you just want to grab people and shake them, right? But y'all, this is how the kingdom of God advances. It's not through us in our power and prestige. Oh, if we could just, you know, have more, I mean, if we could just attract more people and get more people in here, then we'd really spread the gospel. Nowhere, 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 nowhere is that how it advances. But over and over again, Jesus gives us the formula. The kingdom of God advances forcefully as it suffers violence. And how do we suffer violence? Now look, I'm not calling every single person out here to go to the Middle East and get crucified by you know, people who don't believe. That's not, that's not what it means. But how do we suffer violence as Christians? The kingdom of God advances as we become the least. The kingdom of God advances as we give up our earthly prizes and run after God's prize. After God himself. He is our prize, right? The kingdom of God as advances as we serve others ahead of ourselves as we live a life that continually puts the needs of others ahead of ours. Y'all, this is how the kingdom of God advances. We have to stop thinking that there is any other way because we can employ the greatest marketing strategies. The Gospel House can spend a billion dollars and send out postcards to every single person who lives within a 500-mile radius of this church. We can go to every single house and lay goodie baskets for Christmas and we, we can do it all. But the kingdom of heaven advances violently. I don't know about you all, but that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Dude, I want to advance violently, right? Be like Chuck Norris, like, yeah, violent advancing. Kick down doors and stuff. We can wear our American flag pants and you want a roundhouse kick while I'm wearing these babies? You know what I'm But if we want to advance violently, we've got to do it God's way. And we've got to be willing to embrace the cross. We've got to be willing to embrace the crown of thorns, to embrace the servant's towel, to embrace the manger. This is your only path to victory in God's kingdom. What kind of king gave up living a life in a royal palace to embrace a transient life of homelessness. Only Jesus. And the reason Jesus did it is because he knew that this wasn't his home.
Christian, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is not your home. Your life is hidden with Christ. You are living for his home that he has promised you. Stop living for favor and power and position in this world. Stop living for the comforts of this world and start violencing. Become least here and become the greatest in his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.